The sermon title this week is Advent, the Wonder of the Incarnation, John 1, 14. Again, Advent, the Wonder of the Incarnation, John chapter 1, verse 14. And if you were here at the 10 a.m., perhaps you noticed how often our hymns incorporate this idea of the incarnation. How theologically sound our, our hymns are, for which you know, I give thanks. And that when we sing, as we know, we are, we are praising God by God's own word, by the things he has told us. Today we focus on what will be our, our, our last aspect of, of the Advent season. And our main text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Apostle John wrote this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here in the fourth gospel, John opens with this magnificent prologue, which I would say is one without equal in all of literature, not just the Bible, but all of human literature. And how, how could you read John's prologue of his gospel and not want to hear more about what he's talking about? In the beginning of all things was the word with God, was God. In a few sentences, just a few short sentences, John writes of creation, life, a conquering light, a defeated darkness, a witness, a rejection, new birth, and then the incarnation. God becoming a man. How? How does that happen? Well, that's really beyond our ability to comprehend but the who, the what, the why, that, that John can tell us, and he does. Again, in such a marvelously succinct way, when you think about it, how it's just, how it's just in, in essence, like boiled down to just a few words. It's, it's, it's almost miraculous. Well, it, it's inspired. So, yes, we could call the word revealed miraculous. And this is in verse 18 of chapter 1 of his gospel. John's inspired to write, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's the who, what, and why of the incarnation in one sentence. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, assumes human nature. Now, he does not add human nature to his being, nor does he subtract divine nature from his being. There's no adding or subtracting possible when we talk about God. And the Son certainly is God, just as much in every, in every way as the Father and as the Holy Spirit. So you can't add or subtract with the infinite and eternal. It's impossible. But there's an assumption. He assumes human form. And he does this so that as John reveals to us, as the, as the Spirit of God revealed to John, and he puts quill to papyrus, 
and, and tells us this is done so that we may know the Father. Knowing in a sense of being restored relationally with the Father. And, and the Father, God, through the Son, being amongst us humans. And it's only through this incarnation is God knowable to us. So the, the Son restores what once was, which is man's relationship with God. The Son makes all things new again. And John, the, the apostle, compacts these wonders of wonders into this magnificent prologue. Well, the Christmas season is often called a time of wonder. And there are many wonders and wonderful things in our culture that have to do with this season. For those who, as the old saying goes, keep Christmas. Just ask any child or any adult who has retained a childlike love for Christmas, and undoubtedly, you'll get a long list of Christmas wonders. And the ability to experience wonder by its very nature, I would say, is childlike. That being filled with, uh, with amazement, awe, and astonishment as, at something surprising or extraordinary. I think this is avoided at all costs by many grown-ups. But this childlike wonder is vital in Christian faith, so thus also in theology is it vital. And this is a good reminder, I would say, lest we become dry and stuffy in our knowledge. Well, the synoptic gospels, you know, the, the three gospels that kind of give different view of very many of the same events, the first three gospels, uh, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell of an incident during the time when, of Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> At the very beginning, where the incarnate God, who came to us as a baby, now as a grown man, is in turn brought babies. Now isn't this the most proper, most natural thing? Would you not bring your baby to the Lord of life? Carry your precious infant to lie in the arms of Jesus? I think some even today have done this in a very real sense when their children have departed this world. Luke, Luke tells us of this incident in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke records, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Childlike wonder at the miracle of the advent of God the Son, how he came to us, all he did and will do is not just a good thing, but a necessary thing. And the adult response can be 
blasé, indifferent and unimpressed at best. Even jaded, that is dulled, worn out and wearied by overindulgence and a worse cynical, distrusting, disparaging and contemptuous. And contemptuous distrust, I would say, is the modern or postmodern or post-Christian or post-truth age, however you want to describe the time we live in. And scholars use all of those terms for our present time. Contemptuous distrust is a very common response for all things of God. And, I, and with God, I'm talking with the big G, that is the God of the Bible, the Lord God, the triune God, who has revealed himself in our Bible, in Scripture. But oddly, there's no contemptuous distrust for things of God's, little g, plural. That's fine. That's, that's, that's enlightened. So, the time we're in, it, it then becomes easy to wax nostalgic for what in the soft golden glow of our memories invariably is thought of as the good old days, right? We all have good old days. Even our grandchildren at very young ages had good old days. They would talk about back in the day. Our grandson, uh, one of our grandsons did this when he was, I don't know, about six or so, referring back to when he was four, back in the day. <laughs> But, but, but that's, that's not my point. That's for the good old days. That's far from my point. My point will be something hard that should and must be grappled with. An event that has been viewed as ludicrous, illogical, even scandalous. In the Advent season, as you know from what has been presented, these Last three weeks is a time of waiting for an arrival. We have pondered the one for whom we await as the mystery of God. We've delighted in the gift of redemption that is given to us, and now we consider the deepest aspect of this season of celebration by which the mystery of God appeared to bring us redemption, the miracle of the incarnation. Now, all of this ties together Everything um, these last three weeks and today, all of them are essential, but they are realized or come together only by the incarnation, which of course refers to the taking of human form by a deity or a spirit. It's not necessarily only a Christian uh, term, but it's, it's very special in the Christian faith. It means something historical, it speaks of an event that actually occurred in time. So this doctrine of the incarnation is so essential that I, I've touched on it in the last three uh, sermons, the last three Lord's Days, because it's, it's just not, uh, one cannot avoid it, one cannot look away from it. It's there and, and must be recognized, but, but now, today, I think it's appropriate to give it a fuller treatment and so emphasize the incarnation as the capstone of the first advent. So let us have Luke, that beloved physician, the third gospel writer, set the stage for us. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 
through 7 is that wonderful story. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now Luke actually writes his gospel and his, his follow-up, his volume two to that, the Acts of the Apostles, he writes it as a historian. And he tells us this in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, he addresses this person called Theophilus. And Theophilus in the Greek means friend of God. Now, I would say that this is a, this is a real historical person, but also could represent all of us, all of us who are friends of God. So Luke is telling us, the friends of God, Theophilus, this, that he has written this account so that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. He's done the historian's work in placing the incarnation and the way it occurred in our human history. That is Luke's point. Which leads me to my first point. Point number one. We become truly human again because God truly became human. We became truly human again because God truly became human. Now that obviously takes some explaining. The first man created in the image and likeness of God, his creator, before the fall was truly human, as was the woman created from him, created from his side. Adam was exactly as God intended man to be. Eve was exactly as God intended woman to be before the fall, but then came the crime, the rebellion, the sin against God in the garden, motivated by this desire to be like a God. Now this desire, this sin, it's, this marred the true humanness. Adam, created as the image and likeness of the creator, marred the design of the image bearing through the attempt to be a God. By trying to replace God, who is the image, the likeness became blurred and out of focus. So this caused a, a, a state which is irreparable by the image bearer. Adam's sin brought about a separation from, from God and an image moved away and clouded over is no longer a, a true image. And humans have tried everything to repair this damage. However, we can't. We can't repair it. We've, we, we've only made it worse through, through our rituals, through our penances, through our indulgences and unholy sacrifices. It's not made things better. It's made things worse. Only God could rectify this. 
that is if he chose to do so. And in his blessed providence, he did choose to do this through the incarnation. And Peter explains this in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter writes, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He whom Peter writes of is the word that John wrote of, the word who was with God and was God. And made manifest means become, became visible by being amongst his image bearers. And the last, the, the last times, well, Peter was in the last times as we are in the last times. It's not something in the future. It's this last stage of God's restoration of the earth by the, by the advent of the sun, the first advent, and now we await the second advent. And our, our main text, remember, remember tells us that um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the, this word dwelt in the Greek refers to a tent or, or a tabernacle. So God the Son enters into the tent of human flesh, yet remains, back to our main text, full of grace and truth. The divine attributes are unmarred by God the Son assuming humanity. God remains the same. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, as our, as our great high priest, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our Lord and Savior, that he is perfect forever. He did not become imperfect by assuming humanity. He remained the perfect God and thus the perfect man. And we know from John's prologue that the Son is uncreated. So what does Peter mean when he writes, has been made? You, people can get off track on that. So, well, that, that means that, that this person that Peter's writing about was created. No, no, brothers and sisters, friends, it does not mean that. Peter refers here in, in has been made, he refers to the incarnation. This is, this is God becoming flesh. Nothing's changed other than the assumption of humanity. The Son of God in the flesh incarnate. Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect man. He is the second Adam. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he says the first man, Adam, the guy in the garden, right, became a living being. The last Adam, this is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is the last Adam because he restores true humanness lost by the first. Just as he was in the beginning, he is in the end. He is the last. He's the Alpha and Omega. As God assuming humanity, he is man par excellence. There can be no improvement, thus no need for another Adam. Point number two. The incarnation is scandalous to fallen man. The incarnation is scandalous to fallen man. Romans chapter 9, verses 31 through 33, 
tells us about this, actually. We may not see it in our English translations, but it's there, and I'll explain. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this rock of offense here literally is a rock of scandal in the Greek. And Paul's quoting from Isaiah and the Psalms when he says this, that the Lord is declaring this, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of scandal of which that gifted Puritan divine Richard Baxter wrote, quote, this will be not only displeasing, but an occasion of utter ruin to the unbelieving, persecuting Jews, end quote. And we see this in history. We see what happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. How Judea fell finally in 70 AD. How the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple destroyed, and all of the Jews scattered across the earth. And this was foretold by Simeon in the, in the temple. Remember when, when Mary and Joseph bring the baby there for the, for the purification rites. Simeon lifts up this little baby in his arms and declares him to be the visible salvation of Yahweh. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, we hear Simeon's words, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Opposed in the Greek here is antelego. Legos, the word, against the word. Those against the word of God come in flesh. And the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ, knew his coming was scandalous. In Matthew eleven six, Baxter points out that, that this can be interpreted, can be translated as, as the Lord saying, blessed is he that is not scandalized in me. And we translate it usually he was not offended in me. The scandal of the God-man, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the A to Z of all things that were then, were now, and will ever be, comes to us in swaddling clothes, must be nursed and must have diapers changed. And there's a scene in this work of postmodern literature that, that I speak of because it, it really gives the the, the, the mindset of our age that I want you to think about and compare God's word to. And I'm not going to mention the work because I'm not recommending this work, but it's on the list of the most important novels of the last part of the 20th century. There's a scene in, in, this, in, this, in this work. <clears throat> and the time is set during the Second World War. And the narrator is talking about 
Christmas 1944 in Belgium, in this place called the Ardennes Forest, in a battle which we know today as the Battle of the Bulge. He writes of army chaplains there with the U.S. Army forces trapped by the attacking Germans, suffering tremendous casualties, surrounded by the fallen. These army chaplains consider what am I going to preach on? The incarnation? A baby, as the writer says, gazing up from a bed of golden straw that is going to redeem this world as death rains down upon these men? The writer juxtaposes, he compares this ancient scene of the baby which symbolizes peace on earth and goodwill to men with the most brutal, deadly reality of the modern world. And he wants us to think about these things. He leaves the reader to ponder the implications of the incarnation. Yet, and, and here's an issue with it, the author leaves the incarnation in the manger, and we know that's not the end of the story, right? That's just the beginning. Of course, it doesn't make sense at that point. We know there's more, really, just about everybody does. They may ignore the story, but we know there's more. We know, we know there is the cross. We know there is the tomb. We know there is the stone rolled away. We know there is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we know the second advent will be coming where justice will be brought to all things and all things restored in their right sense as God would have it. So God, a baby laying in a manger, scandalous, offensive, insane, unthinkable. Why no thinking person would believe it for an instant. It's a sweet story, an image for children. But those who've outgrown childish things are dismissive of it. Of course, I'm pointing out irony here. This is not, this is not a truth that I'm expressing. This is the idea of our fallen world, what it has of the incarnation. But, but just as bad as those who are dismissive, I would say maybe are those who've become indifferent to the incarnation. There's this novelist who, God works strangely sometimes. He took this novelist and he made him, drove him, inspired him to become a Presbyterian pastor. His name is Frederick Beekner. And he wrote of the incarnation, he said this, quote, until we take the incarnation fully, he who is fully God becoming man fully and enough to be scandalized by it, we've not taken it as seriously as it demands. End quote. What, what Beekner is saying here is that we need to stop glossing over the miraculous fact of what occurred at the first advent in the manger in Bethlehem. Too frequently, it's just one of those hundreds and thousands of facts that we have filed away, we've accumulated uh, in our busy brains, and when it's mentioned, we say, 
Oh, sure, I know that. Everybody does. I mean, I've seen it on hundreds of Christmas cards. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, I'm as much at fault for doing the same thing as, as any of you. This is a wake-up call to myself also. We no longer gaze upon depictions of that scene in wonder. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This brings me to point number three, and my last point. The incarnation is the test of theology. The incarnation is the test of theology. Here is the question upon which all things rest. Jesus put this question to his inner band of disciples, and he puts it to you today through the preaching of God's word. Matthew wrote this down, and here's the question that our Lord presents to you. But who do you say I am? The Lord posed this question to his inner band of disciples. They were in this place called Caesarea Philippi. The disciples couldn't figure out why they were going there. It wasn't on the way to Jerusalem. They were on their way to Jerusalem, and suddenly they have this detour. And they're in this place that faithful Jews did not go. It was a place of evil, pagan worship. Jewish Second Temple literature ascribed the mountain there as the place where the sons of God came to earth and began a reign of terror that corrupted mankind, resulting in the flood. The Romans built a place of worship to their god Pan, who inspired them and modeled despicable, lascivious behavior. So they're in this, this weird place, trying to figure out what's going on. And the Lord poses this first question to them. He's, he wants to get their minds thinking. And he asks them, first, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, you know, if you were in that band and you're walking along the dusty road and, you know, kind of creeped out because you're in this place that you really don't want to be, and your master, your teacher, your rabbi poses this question to you, it's like a pop quiz, right? You know, okay, well, we know the, the Son of Man is, yeah, let's see, what, what, what prophet spoke of that? That's Daniel, right? But yeah, but... but, but um, but the master calls himself the son of man. So, so okay, um, well, he just wants to know who people say he is. So they, they run down this list of all the things they've heard about people who they say he is. The interesting thing is Jesus already knew that answer. He knew that answer because in the second chapter of John's gospel, we are told that when initially, you know, right, um, at this time of his first great public miracle, the changing of water into wine at the wedding in Cana, 
that word of him spread and that people everywhere were, were rejoicing in his coming. They believed that this is the one. But John tells us that Jesus did not trust the crowd's emotions. John tells us that Jesus knew what is in the hearts of people. So Jesus knew who the people were saying he is. As, of course, then it makes sense, doesn't it? When he asked the disciples, but who do you say I am? He knows. It's not that Jesus wants the answer. It's not that he needs the answer. He's setting the mind of the disciples to work here. That this answer is so important that eternity hinges on this question, which will be posed to all people through the ages. Friends, it's been posed to you. Brothers and sisters, it's been posed to you. This answer divides the wheat from the chaff. It divides the sheep from the goats and separates the wolves from those sheep. But if Jesus Christ knew, why then the question? Well, reading the Gospels, you can see that when Jesus answers, asks a question, he's not trying to elicit information. And when Jesus is asked a question by someone, he doesn't always, in fact, rarely does he answer that direct question. He tells that person asking what that person needs to know because Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men and women. Why then the question? Jesus tells us, excuse me, John tells us why this question. And he gives us its answer that public confession is important and in it is the test of theology. John, the same guy who wrote the gospel, in his first letter, which we call 1 John, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he tells us this, and this is very important. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He's talking about the incarnation here, right? That this is the test. This is how you know Who do you say this person is, this Jesus? If you think there's a spirit speaking to you, the spirit of the age, or the spirit indwelling someone at your door who wants to talk to you, who does that spirit say that Jesus Christ is? That's the litmus test here. And John goes on in verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is saying here that the identifying factor of saving faith is the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Are you led by the Holy Spirit or are you led by by the spirit of the Antichrist, that spirit that is against all things of God, all things of Christ, to wit the denial of the incarnation, that the God the Son has come in flesh, is opposition to God. It is the spirit of Antichrist. This is, this is so vital 
that the church has declared from very early on the primacy, the importance of this doctrine. Two great meetings occurred early in the church. Worldwide councils of leaders of the church gathered from all places where the church was established. First they met at Nicaea, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This is not where the Bible was decided upon, no. As, 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 um, as internet theology would, would tell you. <clears throat> it dealt with the person and the nature of the Son of God coming as Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and the council expressed it in a creed. They wrote a creed, which is a statement of belief, right? And this is the first ever creed to be officially recognized by a church council, by a universal church council. And the Nicene Creed declared the necessity of believing in the incarnation. And it reads, in part, starts off, we believe in one God. And then it talks about the person of God. Then it, then it zeroes in on Jesus Christ. And, it, and, it, and I pick it up here where it says, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This may sound familiar because it was in a hymn we sang at 10 o'clock. Who is who for us man and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. As often the case, making a declaration once doesn't fix things. Saying this is what we believe once doesn't fix things. That is why every Lord's Day, one of your pastors gets up here and we preach to you the word of God, even though you've heard the word of God. Because just once often isn't enough in this fallen world. In fact, it's never, it's never enough. So then, there's another great council at Chalcedon in 451 AD. So, you know, 20 some, um, 30 some years later. And this finalized the Orthodox view on the nature of Christ by which the incarnation received a classical formulation which said that in becoming human, God the Son remained, and I quote from Chalcedon, one person, yet had, I quote again, two natures, meaning divine and human. Why? Why the Nicene Creed? Why the Chalcedon definition? These were responses to heresies in the church. There were heresies, there were heresies very early on before this time that I speak of. And even now today we're confronted with heresies. And in light of that, let me warn you on two points here. In, and also in light of what John wrote to us in his first letter. First of all, there are liberal theologians and liberal theology denying the biblical witness on the nature of Jesus Christ. That is, denying the incarnation. And subsequently, flowing from that, the mission of the Son of God in salvation and restoration, which is only possible by the incarnation. So these opinions of liberal theologians, I've read them. I know others of you have read what the liberal theologians say. 
They don't base what they say on scripture. They base it on human philosophy. Human philosophy, logic and reason cannot explain that which is not and cannot be experienced by mortal man. The incarnation is outside the realm of normal human existence. It was a unique, once for all time event. It will never, ever be repeated. It need not ever be repeated. The goals of the incarnation were accomplished. As our Lord said, it is finished. Thus, no more incarnation. Thus, no third Adam needed. It's done. All we wait now, after the first advent, the first incarnation, is the second advent, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is still fully man and fully God. My second warning. There are members of sects, cults, if you will, that come to, some will come to your door announcing to you that they are missionaries, that they are to, they're, they're, they're presenting something to you and hoping that you accept what they're offering. And then there's others that come to the door also that want to speak about the end of the world, right? And they'll ask you all sorts of probing questions about what you think. Well, if you've experienced this, you know they're not really interested. They could care less about what you think. It's just a springboard for them to tell you this false gospel that they're trying to disseminate throughout the world. When you listen to them, though, as I know many of you have, you you soon learn that they do not bring the teaching of Jesus Christ. And back to the Apostle John, he writes another letter, his second letter. And he warns about this. He advises in 2 John, verse 10. There's only one chapter in 2 John. So in the verse 10 of that book, that letter, our book, John says this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This false teaching, this false doctrine is not, John isn't saying, well, they're just merely mistaken. They got a little bit wrong. They're a little bit misguided. No, he's saying this is wicked. This is an abomination. Now, we have to understand it in a first century context. John says, do not greet them. That doesn't mean you can't say hello. That doesn't mean that you can't be polite, that you can't be loving Christians, that you cannot even invite them into your house. You you can bring them into your house if your intent is to witness the true gospel of Christ to them. But brothers and sisters, unless you're quite good at that, be warned that these people train and train and train and train just for this. And how many of you have done that sort of training to present in a, in, in a kind and loving and concerned way the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? So, so just beware and be careful. But yet I say on top of that warning that the Lord will bless any effort that you make in that regard. I am, I am assured of that. I know that to be true. And, and this warning from John, you may be thinking, well, that... That seems harsh, right? What John is warning us about is something that we do truly need to be aware of and that these people are not our brothers and sisters in Christ and you should not treat them as such. 
you know, you're going to find some commonality with them. Oh, they use the name of Jesus. They must be Christians. They think Jesus is connected somehow to God. They're a little bit off in that and in some of the other things. But, you know, all roads lead to Rome or, or to heaven or how, whatever the, the, the saying is. Don't treat them as brothers in Christ and do not give them, John's saying, do not give them a platform to spread false and deadly doctrines. You have to be very careful. If you invite them into your house and there are people there that may hear a conversation that are not solid, that are not mature in their faith, that could be dangerous for them. End of warning. So now, at the end of our Advent season on this, the Lord's Day, the last Lord's Day before we celebrate the Lord's birth, his incarnation. And tomorrow is a, is a glorious day. The Lord has come and he, is, and he is with us. We know this. And by this we know God loves his people. Because, because love and knowledge really go hand in hand. John Milton tremendous writer, writing after the English Civil War. John Milton was on the side of Parliament, that is on the side of the Puritans who were trying to protect pure Christian worship from what the tyrant king Charles I was attempting to do. So after the war, after the, what's called the Restoration, when his Charles I's son, Charles II, is brought back and put back on the throne, and then going against his promises, his guarantees, his kingly word that he would not persecute those who raised up against the tyrant, he proceeds to imprison and execute those who did. And Milton, during this perilous time, writes one of the greatest works in English language, an epic poem, which is... It's not inspired, it's, it's secular literature, but, but, but Milton writes it from a Christian perspective. And in this, there's a scene in which the archangel Raphael warns Adam, this is before the fall, he warns Adam to avoid the apostasy which occurred in heaven. A third of the angels have fallen. Raphael warns Adam, do not do what these wicked angels have done. You must obey God's law about the one thing, right? The one thing that Adam and Eve were to obey regarding the tree of knowledge. Then, then Adam asks the question of Raphael. He immediately seeks knowledge. This is irony. This is what Milton is pointing out, that we can't help this. It's like Raphael is saying, no, do not. Tree of knowledge, stay away. Okay, good, but I want to ask you something because I want to gain knowledge, like, ew, you can imagine, Raphael's like, oh, this isn't going to end well, I know this. But, but Adam explains it. <clears throat> and this, I think, is important. Adam explains his inquiry is not to pry into God's secrets. Adam realizes that there are things of God that man is not meant to know. Things of God which we cannot know, which we cannot understand. Adam explains he wants to know out of a desire to glorify God. And this is what Milton writes. Adam says this, the more to magnify his works, the more we know. 
So this, this interaction that Milton writes uh, about between Raphael and Adam, of course, that's not in the Bible. He's, he's made that up. That's, that's not inspired. But the underlying point Milton is presenting, nonetheless, I would say is, and in his introduction to Paradise Lost, Professor David Caston of Yale, who I don't know if he's a Christian, but he's writing like a Christian, he says this, the more we know, the more able we are to magnify God's works, but also the more we magnify his works, the more we know. So our love for God and our knowledge of God are mutually supporting and both the proper love and proper knowledge of God should always focus on his glory, just like what Caston is saying, like what Adam says in this work of fictional poetry. We are to magnify God's works, which means look closely at them, meditate upon them, celebrate them, and proclaim them at Advent season and at all seasons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this miracle of God the Son coming to us in flesh, his atoning work on the cross, the redemption that our triune God has accomplished in this. Father, we know we are not worthy of that, yet you love us, yet you've done these things for us. Father, may we just marvel at that. Father, may we celebrate tomorrow knowing that the first advent will be followed by a second advent and that our Lord will return, that he will return in might and power and that we should be ready for that. Father, let us do the things that help others be ready for that. Let us live our life for your glory. Let us honor you in all we do. Let us glorify you by our words and actions, which we know we fail at time and time again, and for which we are most heartily sorry, Lord. Bless this day. Bless our evening service, Father. Bless my brothers and sisters here and those who are under the weather watching by live stream. Father, we, we pray for those who are ill. Father, we pray for their recovery. We pray for their health. We pray for their physical restoration at this time. Father, I pray for our friends both here and again watching on the internet. Father, that they may consider what you have to say in your word, that they may ponder these things and not quickly dismiss them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.